Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. On today's episode, I have an interview with Dr. Saurabh Jha. He is a radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and we'll be talking about the importance of debate and dialogue, what it used to mean, and what it means in this modern age. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. On Plenary Session, we've heard listener feedback, and we're going to try something new. We're going to take our long episodes, and we're going to put them out piecemeal, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, just as you've asked. And then we will see what happens and how people listen. So, the experiment's on. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Saurabh Jha. Dr. Jha should need no introduction to folks who are active, online, or in the real world. Dr. Jha is a radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. He did his medical training in the United Kingdom, and I think spending time in the United Kingdom has given him a refreshing perspective on the world. He is a great believer in dialogue, in discourse, in the dialectic, and it's my pleasure to have him here to talk about many things, medicine and beyond. Dr. Jha, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Vinay. Thanks for the invitation. Finally, we get to talk. I don't know if we've ever talked on the phone before or via Zoom as we're doing now. No, no, it's just beyond Twitter. Yeah, just beyond, just <laughs> beyond Twitter. Twitter without the emojis. <laughs> but um, obviously, we've talked a lot uh, online, typing, pecking away at our words. Um, I wonder where we should dive in. Um, I think I think one thing that I want to probe with you is is the ability to engage in debate. I mean, I want to talk to you about that. Um, I wonder if you might tell us um, a little bit about your background. I know you did your medical school um, at Guy's in, in, in the UK. Um, I know um, you're a fan of Christopher Hitchens, um, and you're, you're somebody who's long believed in, in the importance of, of a good dialogue and maybe also with a good beer. Um, uh, how do you think about dialogue, debate, um, and, and what were your medical experiences like in the UK um, that motivated you in this space? Yeah, so I, uh, I was raised mostly in England. I got there when I was quite young. And um, the education that I got was what would be considered a classic education, mm. very much old school rhetoric based. Uh, quite a bit of emphasis on debating. Well, one of the first things you're taught is that you have to articulate your opponent's view before you can even begin to rebut them. So of course, yeah. you don't yes, get yeah. into the weeds of misrepresentation and strawman arguments. But, you know, the, the major difference was that even at university, the, the dialogue and the discourse, there were political opinions that people had. I was very much left-leaning at the time. Which would indicate that I'm not anymore, <laughs> not as much as I was. And um, Mrs. Thatcher was uh, had a great stature at the time. Uh, actually, 
she had left John Major to come around. I see. And there was Neil Pinnock and... So this is 91, 92, John Major, 92. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Yeah, the discourses you had at the time were, weren't toxic. And also, most people considered all politicians to be idiots. It was really a case of who was less of an idiot versus the other. And they didn't take any moral dimensions. So mostly I remember uh, having arguments with um, college conservatives. And they were, you know, very straight-laced. They wouldn't drink as much as the, uh, <laughs> as the people who were more left-leaning. Um, and then there were religious uh, arguments as well. And they were with... Um, uh, Christians and Muslims and uh, well, mostly those two. Uh, more in the sense of does God exist or not. Right. And um, I don't I don't think it ever got personal. It got heated. It got passionate. Uh, I felt very passionate about at least not believing in God. And uh, so, you know, the, that was like, that was the sort of type of arguments we'd have in, in medicine itself, I, yeah, most of the issues were you, know, you really could be bothered to take it. Animal rights was pretty big at the time. Um, ethical issues weren't as divided. I think you kind of all knew that there were social determinants of health, and you didn't really you didn't need to be told that people living in poor zip codes had had it worse than people living in richer zip codes. I imagine now that. Has to be part of pedagogy. I mean, <laughs> That's right. Apparently, it has to be. Yeah, it's not as obvious as it once was. Yeah. Anybody, and I used to go to India a lot because um, yeah, we were just one generation away from it. And yes. once you go to India, once you travel in northeast India, you realize that that a lot of things that people think are necessary knowledge at the moment is just assumed. And uh, so, medicine didn't take these type of. You know, Debates and, but importantly, I think, um, and when I came on Twitter, it was around uh, 2014, we would talk about evidence based medicine, we would yeah. talk about epistemology, yeah, lots of randomized control trials versus knowledge getting up to that. But none of that, you know, none of that had any moral dimensions, but you had one belief, you had the other belief, so what? Uh, obviously, as you can see, that 2020 is slightly different. Now, the discourse has, doesn't have been because one, when I disagreed with the theist, I didn't think the theist would not know the carpal bones, because clearly they did. I wouldn't think that they would prescribe somebody higher or lower doses of medication, because I didn't think that they would be incompetent in the position just for the belief. Right. But ironically, when you disagreed with the theist as a college student, it um, there was less of a moral dimension than some of the yeah, disagreements we're having today, right? Yeah, even though that's you're surprising bit. Yeah, you're talking about God. Yeah, you know, you, you, the the assumption was, I mean, the baseline assumption was that we didn't need God to do the right thing. Yes, uh, but we were all kind of you know, in in the same wagon doing the right thing. But I didn't think anything less scientifically of it because of these religious disputes. So what has actually happened now, interestingly, is that the two have converged: the science and the morality. So now disagreements on science are no longer just simply disagreements on science. They are disagreements on morality themselves. And once you have them, then you lead to a delegitimization, which means that people can't be bothered to articulate the other person's viewpoints. And that's where discourse falls apart. Discourse, discourse falls apart because it becomes lazy and lazy. I mean, part of arguing, enjoying the argument, 
is actually winning. And you know you can't win unless you're playing the games, unless you've identified what the game is. And straw man arguments are always winning because you know, it's, they don't need you anywhere. And now it's not even straw man. It's not even misrepresentation. It's just simply um, delegitimization. Um, yes. That's taking, that's, so you've, uh, of course, been in the forefront of this. And <laughs> Hopefully not on the giving uh, end, but on the, uh, who knows? Well, on the receiving end, yes. yes. Uh, and one of the things I noticed was that you did something on um, school kids. You've been quite vocal about school kids. Yes. And uh, the, the COVID restriction. Um, there should be a general agreement that um, that education is important. Yes. I mean, we shouldn't be debating that. Now it's a case of, is this a worse net harm than restricting them at school? And that isn't a moral argument at all. That's that's sort of a, you know, that's a... Empirical argument. Scientific yeah. argument. So how people can make that a moral issue, say you're a granny killer, that's really where I think we're having a big problem. Um, science is actually amplifying the morality. That's you know well, I mean? yeah. I, I mean, I guess I would, I just want to start by the beginning of what you're saying, which is that, you know, um, I, I, I didn't have a college in the, um, you know, in the, in the United Kingdom tradition, but I remember being a college student and engaging in a lot of the same things that you describe, sitting around with a group of, I think, thoughtful people. Um, we found each other, um, and, and having some drinks and having a good dialogue. And I think the things we debated heavily when I was a college student, which was, seems like about a decade after you, um, was, uh, one, of course, God, the existence of God. That's a perennial topic for, for, for young debaters to, I think, hone their chops on. Uh, the other one is uh, a sense of what is a just uh, a government, uh, progressive government. Is that the just government, um, libertarian government? People had strong views. But I remember that despite the fervor, um, the aggressiveness of the debate, um, we were always trying to do our best to, I think, as you say, articulate the opponent's view fairly. Of course, you won't win if you don't. I mean, in, in actual face-to-face -face dialogue, the, the anyone sitting on the sidelines, the other people at the dinner party, they can tell you're doing an asshole job of articulating the opponent's views, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to give you any credit. Um, so we have to do that when you're, when you're actually debating somebody. Um, and then the other thing is, I never thought that the person I was debating was a bad person. They were almost always somebody who I was friends with, who I I, uh, had a great deal of affection for, um, and and so the 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 fun part was was the dialogue itself. Um, it was a type of amusement um, and a way to kind of sharpen your wit uh, and your mind, um, and and I think that's different in social media, although. You know, you point out wisely, because I think I joined around the same time you did, 2014-15. I think we were able to have debates. Of course, some of them got quite heated, and people got angry at each other, and there were mutes, and there were blocks, and those kinds of things. But, you know, we were able to debate, and I don't think anyone called anyone's boss. I don't think anyone, um, you know, uh, led a campaign to get the other person fired or, or disbarred. Um, that has shifted a lot. That's changed a lot in the last year and a half, would you say? Yeah, no, that has been um, that has been one of the more ungracious elements of the whole thing, and that's what makes it um, difficult to debate because you don't know what the other person is going to do. Consequences. It's become the consequences. It's not so much the it's not so much the um, government restricting. You mentioned Hitch. Hitchens. Hitchens actually had a nice discussion with uh, Shashi Thoreau. You should um, YouTube that. 
on free speech. And uh, Hitchens pointed out that it's no longer the government uh, you know, locking you as a dissident. Every journalist wants to be locked as a dissident. It's, it's, the, it's the, um, the university, it's your colleagues. And the question is, why, why do they want to muzzle? What's this, what's this um, pension for muzzling people? Mm-hmm. And I think it again comes down to the very fundamental thing that it's now assuming uh, moral dimensions. So when you think that a certain person, I've also had complaints <laughs> to my chair, um, who knows me very well and uh, knows that I can be a little flippant, as <laughs> I am when it comes to grand rounds and asking the question, saying, oh my God, it's him again. It's, he's asking, but you obviously, if you don't know me, you might not arrive at that precise conclusion. Um, and I think it's, it's because once you start thinking, oh, you know, here's this guy, rogue rab, uh, he's, he, He's, he's immoral, he's, he's a bigot, he's, he's whatever. Um, then you don't feel any compunction in actually phoning up the boss because you think you're doing some sort of complex service. And I think that's that's the key difference. The question, of course, is how did this morality arise when we're supposed to be more enlightened now than ever before, we're supposed to be more science-based now than ever before. I think philosophers would say that uh, you know when people stop believing God, they didn't stop believing in um, something. They stopped, you know, they stopped. You know, they started believing in other. Things. And, you know, when you took God away, you had other, you had other churches. And so we were always this way in time. And instead of the um, some magical figure in the sky that didn't exist, that became our external frame of reference. Now it's you know um, promotion committees and and this wider network of people that we uh, wish to please and. Um, Gain there, um, and it becomes, you know, it becomes a, it's, it's, it's both an echo chamber and also a self-determining chamber. Yes. I wonder if we might, you might give me your two cents on specific instances. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a couple. You tell me what you think. Um, I see right now as we speak, John Mandrola is getting himself in trouble. You know, John Mandrola, <laughs> John Mandrola, John. obviously. It's a terrible human being. Um, that part's clear. But here's what he said that got himself in trouble. Um, there's an article that appeared in the New York Post. It's, um, I guess the, t- the, the, the headline is, Why is the left lashing out at Joe Rogan in this groundbreaking podcast? Uh, I think it's supportive of Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, full disclosure, I've listened to several episodes, but full disclosure, I haven't listened to all the episodes. Um, here's why John Mandrola writes. Oh, no, this is a quote from the article. Quote, Rogan is a fundamentally critical thinker who formulates his views on a case-by-case basis rather than adhering to ideological narratives, end quote. And John Mandrola writes, why is this controversial? And I see he's, he's quickly learning why on Twitter, why this is controversial. Um, and, 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 and I guess I would say, um, you know, why have I listened to some of these episodes of Joe Rogan? I would listen when, you know, he brings on somebody who I'm interested in a great deal for three hours, and I want to know what that person has to say. Um, and I would say there are things I like about the show. I think at sometimes he's he's quite an earnest um, interlocutor. He's quite good at getting the, the the guest to speak up. And I've listened at other times, and I cringe because I think there's some issues that he has some dogmatic view that I probably don't agree with. Um, and he just keeps banging on about his view, and he doesn't let his guest talk. And and I that's what you know rubs me the wrong way. And I say, oh God damn it, Joe Rogan, shut up and let this person talk and let them say their view. Um, anyway, those are my feelings, but. You know, I guess I would say that um, any person 
Joe Rogan, any person, has got probably some views that you may agree with. It probably also has some views you may disagree with. Um, is, is listening to such a person with a mixed set of views that you agree and disagree with, is that bad? Is that, is that problematic? Um, what do you think about John's tweet? John yeah, Man- that, yeah. that's, it, it's hard for me to take these reactions seriously. A few people have pointed out that uh, John may be a little naive. He might not have heard. He might not know the full spectrum of the guests of Joe Rogan. Well, I haven't heard, to be honest. Um, and he, apparently he has brought on science denialists and anti-vaxxers. Um, so that, you know, those are, those are legitimate, uh, objections. And so, well, you probably don't know that this guy brings on science denialists. If you care about that, you might not like him. I think that's fine. That's, but what would actually, no, I want to push you on that. I mean, I guess the claim is, um, if some of the episodes are people with those points of view, science denial, vaccine, you know, the, whatever you just said, or other loathsome, objectionable points of view, could even be fracking, you know, it could even be, I don't know, something absolutely unconnected to medicine. Um, j- simply because a, a, a person is hosting a show and some of the guests are objectionable, um, you know, do we have to throw the whole show away? That's, the, I think that's... No, absolutely yeah, not. Right, yeah. You know, you know, the, there are... The, the the most famous talk show in the world has always invited people from from the fringes of society. Of course, yeah. Even uh, yeah. sixty minutes had Ahmed in a job. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes. And there's this guy in India, Arnab Goswami. He's had a he's had a whole host of characters in the show. Yeah. Um. I think that people sometimes want to hear what fringes of society say. Yeah. And sometimes, um, some, yeah, I think there, there is a case we made to humanize people in different ways so that you don't start hating each other that much. Uh, but, you know, whatever that is, there were one or two responses to John that were like, you know, you brought this up and you've hurt my feelings. <laughs> I thought, all right, this is getting a little ridiculous. Um, and this is where, you know, this almost becomes like the purity case. You know, there's, there's these, Purity tests that uh, happen. That it's not enough that you um, agree with me. You must show that you agree with me. You must be hundred percent. And that's where things start getting a little creepy and unnecessary. I must say. I mean, it doesn't. You don't need to have that. You don't need to. Have, it doesn't really help your cause. It doesn't. It doesn't do any good. It just gets people to natter about the um, censorship as opposed to the actual. Content. John gets it quite a bit, and he he seems to um, he seems he seems to get a disproportionate response. I think he once said something to the order of um, uh, of don't just try and build your follow account. <laughs> Wait, don't just try to let's say it again. Build your follow account, or you know, don't yes. uh, don't drive fear in the COVID era to build your follow account. Yes, and what people didn't like that. People didn't like that. People Even though that's what they're guilty of doing. <laughs> you had a lot of that. You had that uh, professor from Penn who said that um, curricula spends too much time on... Stanley Goldfarb. Stanley Goldfarb, yeah. I hope, um, I, I believe he's been, um, he's been drawn and quartered, is my understanding. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I think when he when he said those things, he'd already um, moved a notch down. Oh yes, uh, he had I, already stepped down a little bit. But let, let me. That's a good example. That's an example that I thought was quite interesting. Um, it was a Wall Street Journal editorial. And, you know, to be honest, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, I'm generally not a fan of Wall Street Journal editorials. I'm always I'm always on Twitter complaining about the latest Wall Street Journal editorial because they always say things that I don't like, um, uh, like cancer drugs are all wonderful, even though they improve survival one day. Um, Stanley Goldfarb writes some editorial, and I guess he's a, 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 um, he has he's a very senior physician. Um, and I think and I and you know maybe maybe people are not going to like my characterization, but I think his general view was that medical curriculum ought to focus on training exceptional clinicians, um, i.e., people who can see people, understand illness, diagnose illness, treat illness. Um, and then he said that these other issues, um, he does not think the curriculum ought to uh, train. Physicians, um, those issues I think he delineates are um, issues of social justice, uh, issues of climate change. I think he listed a few. Um, and of course, that's just his opinion, of course. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm somebody who does a great deal of work looking at the relationship between drug approval, monetary policy, um, you know, wealth and and socioeconomics and socio and socioeconomic determinants of health um and i and and i think there's quite a deal of ways in which those intersect at the same time i i should note that you know when you are a practicing clinician um you know you don't always get into all those things sometimes you do to some degree get into um somebody's unique situations uh, but often you do um you know just try to do the best you can in the system we have um you you can't always reform it so i i wear two hats i think um Anyway, this is his view. Um, he got a lot of he got a lot of criticism for it, and I think you know people people um, people really condemned him. Um, what what are your thoughts on this? It's been a long time since I looked at this story. Yeah, I, at the time, I thought there were two categories of responses. Uh, one was um, humorous. Basically saying that uh, I think it was hashtag Goldfarb challenge. I thought that was quite funny. Hashtag Goldfarb what? Challenge. I said where they said I know about Golgi bodies or Golgi bodies or something, uh -huh. and yet I understand climate change. Meaning the two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, right. I just integrated somebody, and I know about social determinants of health. Right. So um, uh, I know the Krebs cycle. Krebs cycle is one that is easy. Yeah, my <laughs> so my favorite. Yeah, my favorite one. There was that. Then there was a level of anger that seemed, um, again, it was, it was bordering on the morality. And if you cut it down to what he was saying, and a lot of people have said that, I've said it in different guys. I said that, that uh, Lancer should not be wading in the dispute. Um, my major concern for saying that was that I thought it would sully the relationship between doctors of India and Pakistan Roger, who worked with in various hospitals and uh, the journal has no business doing that. And it's not really going to solve the solve the problem, but it can make This is the Kashmir and Lancet editorial. Uh, so that's a, my, my, my understanding is Richard Horton has the map and he's actually drawing the um the boundary. Oh well you know he, <laughs> he has, he, he's uh he, he has um uh, this worldview that uh, Lancet and doctors can solve everything, but then you know it leads to a little bit of a problem because every every major conflict is a public health problem. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily in the province of doctors. Uh, one can go back and forth in this. There's no doubt that 
social determines effects. Virtually everything that we do. But it's not to say that we have unique insights into how to solve these issues. And, so, and the, uh, certainly, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, it doesn't require much common sense to understand. You don't need a three-month curriculum. And if you really want, spend some time in primary care, which is really what I did. We all had to spend some time in primary care. And my my uh, my rotation was was in Brixton, and this was Brixton and Camberwell back in 1994. It wasn't, uh, I don't know if you've been to London recently, it's now really uh, refurbished the whole area. Yes. At the time it wasn't, and the disparities between uh, what was the Northern Line tube spots were incredible. You had Pimlico on one hand, and you had, um, I mean, you, know, you don't need to be taught that, it's just obvious. See, I guess, I, yeah, and, and I, I mean, and to give, um, you know, I, th- I think this argument a little bit more, um, more depth, I think, you know, you would say, um, uh, the way you articulated it is that every conflict is to some degree also affects human health. And that's especially true for war, for border disputes, for all these things. I mean, obviously, there will be some people whose whose health and prosperity will be affected by these political, sociopolitical conflicts, global political conflicts. Um, and, and you say it's it's not the, the doctor's duty to solve all these things. Um, uh, and, and part of that, you also would concede that um, none of these editorials are saying that any individual doctor can't have an opinion or can't voice their opinion. The editorial is taking a, 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 a sort of my understanding is a very nuanced position, which is that you are free as a doctor who cares passionately about any global political issue to insert yourself as any citizen is in any issue and, and fight for what you believe in. At the same time, I think these people would argue that that ought not be the core purpose of the curriculum. The curriculum should teach you to be a doctor if you so choose to go inject yourself in the Kashmir border dispute, to be honest, which I, I know nothing about, even though, you know, my parents are from India. I know I know nothing about that dispute, and I would be in no position to comment. But um, you're free to do that if you were to wish. But we should not take the curriculum, the precious time we have, and spend teaching you about that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, charging you in that in that capacity. So, uh, so, uh, uh, so I think one of the things people said to him was, "Who are you to tell me I shouldn't care about these issues?" I don't think that's what he was saying. I think he's saying that um, you're free to care about those issues. In fact, care passionately. But but while you're here learning this quote unquote MD, we're going to try to focus on. I mean, this is his argument, not even my argument. I actually would disagree because I think what I teach is most important. Anyway, that's my bias. Um, uh, and what I teach is regulatory stuff, um, which has human dimensions. But but his argument is that while you're here, we ought to teach you how to be a doctor. That's his argument. So I think it was already a straw man from the get-go. That's not what he was saying. What do you think? Right. And what then happened was that you create this. I, I wrote something in defense. <laughs> I wrote a tweet in defense. Uh, I know him reasonably well. I've been tracking him before. He's a very nice guy. Ho- horrible human being? Him. Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> He shared some Irish babies on the plate for the first week. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, very, very uh, smart clinician. And um, and the thing that happened, it, so what social media does is it creates the climate. It creates the, um, it creates the um, burden of proof, so to speak. Because if it's default assumed that he is a bad person, for you now to say that he's not, you have to go to the incredible lengths to say that he's not. The burden proof is on you. It inverts everything. So because he said this, it must mean this. 
and there were and there were lots of uh, stuff written about him. There's uh, editorials in Medscape. There was one in Philadelphia Inquirer. People were distancing themselves from him. And then you had this had this. It wasn't a debate. There was no discourse. Of it. it was just. Um, and people might say, well, there was nothing to debate about. And I would say that's not true, as you said as well. That there is something to understand and debate in the whole thing. But the reaction, which is why I think Twitter is not really the medium where these thorny issues can be explored. I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a, a Sisyphean task. I think there are people that are interested in exploring these issues. Um, but it has to go beyond that. It has to go in yeah. podcasts and long term. Yes, like because, what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, I have, I have a theory of what happened. I mean, I think you're accurate in your characterization. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. The response wasn't. What is Stanley Goldfarb saying? What is he saying right? What is he saying wrong? What is he saying that I object to? That wasn't the response. The response was that simply by virtue of an older senior white man saying this. Stanley Goldfarb is a bad human being. He's a horrible person. I don't know how he skated by at the University of Pennsylvania all these years. He's a bad person. It was a referendum on who Stanley Goldfarb is. Bad person, bad human being. Everything he everything he says is bad. Um, and so, so that was quickly the narrative. And so anyone who would say anything otherwise, you know, it doesn't matter. All, you know, millions of hours of person time with Stanley Goldfarb uh, cannot trump um, the fact that, you know, by saying this one op-ed, he's a bad person. Um, we're not going to engage with the substance of his argument. We're not even going to try to paraphrase his argument. Obviously, it's a loathsome argument that doctors should not comment on these issues. Now, um, I, I think, I actually think my hypothesis is um, that that reaction ironically, help Stanley Goldfarb's argument. That's my hypothesis, because there are a lot of people on the sidelines who aren't, um, you know, um, coming to the uh, We Hate Stanley Goldfarb rally. Um, they secretly are getting more solidified in their view that medical education is not teaching people to be doctors, but rather teaching people about social justice issues at the expense of being a great clinician. Um, they're becoming more and more solidified in that view. Um, I think the irony, the, 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 the grand irony of the story and all of these stories where, you know, it becomes a referendum about the person and not what they said not the idea that they are they are really to be honest you know it's not an it's not a perfect it's not a perfectly original idea actually it's a quite old idea that i've heard many many incarnations of he's just the latest incarnation and by not confronting the idea and 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 confronting the person um i i i fear you actually you actually fuel the idea in circles in in places in rooms um, that you don't get to see and so i i've always advised that it is a great mistake you you don't defeat ideas by hanging um hanging people who said them um you defeat ideas by showing others uh what are the structural things wrong with the ideas yeah that nobody really has time for I, you know in a sense it's it's the laziest risk yes so. You, if you can demonize, you don't have to actually formulate an argument. And the mixing of medicine and politics, uh, again, you know, you can go on and on about this for hours. People will quote, work off. Um, people will say, of course, it's the doctor's business. But one of the things that happens when doctors start wearing political hats is that they no longer appear neutral. And once you don't appear neutral, it's 
there has there has to be a profession that every person looks at and says, all right, it doesn't matter what what's going on in the world, what the bias is, but I know that you are there for me regardless. When once doctors stop being neutral um, and start becoming politicized, then it's a case of who they're politicized for. Then you have, well, are you a Republican doctor? Are you a Democrat doctor? And, um, nowhere has this been more prominent in this particular pandemic, where you've seen, and this is both sides, and I know people think both sides, but it's both sides actually. I mean, you, know, you see one side that's absolutely politicized hydroxychloroquine, yes. um, and the other side that has taken the potentiality of COVID and altered the burden of proof there. So, you know, like with COVID myocarditis, COVID and long haul COVID. Um, we now have to prove that it doesn't exist as opposed to it exists. Right, right. And, and just one yeah. more thing about the hydroxychloroquine. The the yeah. side, the other side, the left mm-hmm. on the hydroxychloroquine, they make it seem, they made it seem that if you take one hydroxychloroquine, you'll have QT prolongation R on T and you'll be dead. I mean, they really drummed up the um, the cardiac yeah, side no, effects, right? Well, yeah. which, I mean, I, I, I'm a radiologist, so the only drug I prescribe is I don't need to contrast. But, uh, <laughs> It's been it's been used for malaria and and SLE and rheumatoid perhaps. Yes, a lot of people take it, and I don't see them dropping. I mean, you know, it's I mean, I you know, I've said at the outset, I had a I I think it was unlikely to have any role in SARS-CoV-2. I think I was a, a, a huge skeptic. I'm a skeptic about the prior probability a drug works in most things. That's my um, inclination. Uh, that's not a political inclination. That's an inclination that comes from many years of empirical science and pretest probability of drug um, success. Um, so I came in and I said it's not going to work. Um, uh, but I noticed that it quickly became just a, just a disaster. Um, and I, I would argue the masks became a disaster in the same space because, um, right. yeah, yeah the, I mean, now the mask is, all, I mean, it just is just a, I mean, you, I, I can see all these, um, young Democrats wearing their masks and, you know, I mean, but it's really a, a joke, but it's, it's become too polarized. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I don't know. I, I sometimes struggle, um, it, I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, but imagine I was in some, you know, rural part of this country and I'm, you know, a Trump supporter. I would, you know, I can't imagine, but I imagine I am. Um, and then I go to see a doctor, a cardiologist, and I, I Google my cardiologist and the cardiologist, um, I look through the cardiologist tweets and, um, you know, everything is Trump. Everything is Trump. It's, um, you know, yeah. he's an idiot. He's stupid. Cartoon of him. He's an imbecile. He's a moron. And I am a Trump supporter. I mean, I guess, let me just analogy. Let's just say I'm a, I'm a Catholic and I go to some cardiologist feed and it's just, just Catholics are stupid. Um, Catholics have priests who sexually abuse kids. Catholics are bad. Catholics, Catholics, Catholics. I I mean, won't I feel like the hell I got to find a new cardiologist. I don't know about this dude. Yeah. That's one of the first things my dad told me when I was being a physician is that, you know, you have to Put aside, your, well, he wasn't talking about politics. He was talking about religion because that was more relevant in our culture at the yes. time. So my dad, who is retired or at least should be retired, <laughs> work for Hollywood, so he won't retire. Uh, he he was a GP for most of his life in a area that had um, a lot of um, Pakistani origin people. I see, and also um, Sikhs, a um, uh, few white people, but mostly um, mostly. Particular catchment area was um, for subcontinent, and he's a Hindu. Uh, but he said that he never let, he never wore the differences of religion on his sleeves. So, and his 
God, Sonny, patience, loved it. Because as far as they were concerned, now if he was some sort of Hindu fanatic, that, yes, you know, I support Modi and I do this and I do that, yes, and then then his patience would be off. But as far as they were concerned, he was a neutral position, and they didn't think that oh, this guy has no feelings whatsoever about religion. Of course, being a human, he does. Or you know, having his own baggage in history, he does. But as far as the professional interaction is concerned, or at least. You know, in, he wasn't on Twitter. He wasn't on Twitter. So there's no social media. But there were, um, you know, you met at various scholarships. You never wore either the politics or the religion on the streets at all. And only used it, only used these things insofar as he could understand his patients better. So if he knew that uh, Ramadan was coming, he was particularly concerned if you're a Muslim. How are you going to be more compliant with your medication? Right. So, yes, in a sense, you do need to understand the culture in the context of what pharmacology is, but then you don't have to wear it. And I think the problem now is that uh, too many people, and again, it's both sides. So <laughs> just to uh, just to be clear that even, even on the right, in the conservatives, you have positions that are... Um, and that, that during the time of Obamacare, they were very vocal against it. And they were bringing up socialized medicine and making all these apocalyptic predictions that were idiotic. Yes, uh, idiotic, <laughs> yes. Um, and, I, I will, yeah. No, I, I guess, I mean, what you say makes me think of one just sort of concrete example of that, which is, um, you know, I, I guess I, I'll be the first to admit that I am somebody who um, thinks social and political issues have an oversized role on human health. That's one of my you know, fundamental biases, that what we do in healthcare in pursuit of health is a very modest fraction of the a, a modest R squared, if you will, of what we do to health outcomes. Most of what we do to health outcomes is childhood nutrition and taking care of people and educating people and helping people have prosperity um, and, and having equity. I think that's more of outcomes. And I spend a lot of my time researching ways in which the system is broken or quote unquote rigged, um, especially drug approval and things like that. That's a huge interest of mine. So I'm deeply sympathetic to that view. However, I think there is a difference between acknowledging that the lives of men and women are governed by uh, political and social forces versus being a naked political actor. And I think naked polit politics can lead you astray. I mean, I think the classic example is the schools. Um, many people, um, you know, I have been vocal about it, but I wasn't always vocal. I remember in January, in, not January, in June and July, I read like a million papers um, to try to equip myself with the information to make a judgment. I tried very hard not to be seduced by Mr. Orange, and I tried very hard not to be seduced by the people who hate Mr. Orange. Um, and, and I tried to just find my own path. And I realized on this particular issue um, that although I've had disagreements with the president before, he happened to be probably deeply right um, on this issue, although I disagree with him on probably 90% of issues. Um, so he was right on this issue, but people who were so wedded to politics, whose you know background is their Twitter profile and their background is a banner, um, Biden Harris, um, they they didn't they didn't allow themselves that intellectual exercise. They couldn't approach it as a neutral person. They sided against the president simply because they are opposed to the president. Um, and I think the reality is that liberals, progressives, are going to be. Um, 
at least to some degree complicit in the single greatest discriminatory act of the last quarter century um, that will that will that will destabilize this this country for years to come. Um, what do you think? It is, it's it, it's an unfortunate um, the, the worst thing is, and of course, Trump didn't help matters. Uh, never, never does. Never does. <laughs> and just the way he would. Um, and you could have been much more empathetic with positions and just had much more of a leadership role. But yeah, that's that's a different topic altogether. I think the major issue was that from the very start of the pandemic, uh, at least from the start of the lockdown, it's amazing how rapidly it became politicized. And I guess um, John Unidas was the canary in the coal mine. I'll tell you, when, when his piece came out, it's on record, right? 100% disagree. My frame of thinking is very much for the talent. Yes, of course, right, which is that fat tail probability. And that was, you know, I think if somebody will dig up, I had a tweet like that in January about fat tail probability events. Yeah, I remember. You disagree with John. Go on, yes. Yeah, and uh, and um, But I just thought the guy is working from a certain frame of reference, yes. which is done for virtually everything. Uh, I disagree with that. I disagree that you can keep counting. This is what happened in February. There's an infographic in JAMA in February, which said we should be more worried about the flu. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And a lot uh, of and a lot of the same experts who are now COVID pundits on TV came on CNN and they said, "Oh, well, more people die of the flu each year than SARS-CoV-2." I mean, the same yeah. people. Yeah. And around uh, around the time, it just screams us. Okay, maybe we shouldn't worry about this, but that's not the argument. The same thing was said with Ebola. Right. Well, you know, you should be worried about a vending machine in the building. Right. And that drove Nassim Taleb really angry. Yeah. So you understand there's a difference between these two probabilities. The one is, one, there's an asymmetry of error. In any case, what Unidas said, one would disagree with from a certain frame of reference. But what he said wasn't unusual. What, what has been said in similar situations at similar times. Yes. And he wasn't that far off. That's like right. March 16th, people were saying towards the first week of March that we're, we're going to be fine, we're going to be fine. And the New York mayor, who probably didn't make the pronouncement himself, was telling people to go enjoy Paddy's Day. But I think they enjoyed it. I enjoyed it in Philly as well, actually. <laughs> right. Um, and that's, that's his frame. I mean, you know, he, uh, as you know, I spoke to him at great length. Um, and, he was willing to make some compromises with Nassim uh, Taleb's friends. So I yes. understand the fear of uncertainty. He was saying that that can't go on forever. That has to be resolved in about three, four weeks. By then, you should have more. So that was when the politicization started. And thereafter, what has actually happened on an epistemic front is that the burden of proof was by the time it came to long-haul COVID and COVID-19, a framework that could have, should have been used by many people who have, um, and I know you're, you're, you're familiar with this, is the overdiagnosis issue. Right. Overdiagnosis and how any imaging test, the more sensitive it becomes. Of course, yes. But it, it's not a false positive issue. Now it's an overdiagnosis issue conflate the two and the diagnosis is you're saying somebody's disease and nothing will happen to them catching subclinical disease and stuff like that people should have used that same frame but they were but they reverted to the precautionary principle and 
I think there was a there was a discussion that we had on Twitter that unfortunately went sour as well. But say not unsurprisingly, but unfortunately, they prominent. They all go there. sour. Yeah, they all go sour. I mean, I, I guess I would also say that, and and to make the long COVID story worse, is there were some accounts, several accounts. Not all of them are named Eric, but many are uh, that um, just fear monger incessantly, and COVID and 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 long COVID was just another another arrow in their quiver of fear mongering. They're shooting that long COVID arrow, and they just so uncritically accept every myocarditis long COVID story. I I I can't even bear it. I mean, y- yes, it's entirely possible that a lot of these are sequela of COVID, but one should wear one scientist hat and try to interrogate that. Um, and and, yeah. and one should do it with the acknowledgement that you put people in MRI machines every day of the week, you're going to find things. If you put me in an MRI machine and pet with every single day, you will find things. You might find that bad burrito I ate a few weeks ago. Who knows what you'll find, but you'll find something. And then I hope you don't cut it out. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and so essentially, you know, the, the burden of proof, and once that happened, now... You're having to say that now I have to prove that my kind of decision is not. That's when we're kind of like 20 years study. Yeah. Because obviously symptoms aren't reliable because they can be asymptomatic and echo yeah. is not reliable because it can happen normally. <laughs> you're left with having to show it for the next 20 years. So 20 years later, I say, hey, I was right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh... We moved to the next pandemic by then. But I, I don't think this is good, man. You know, the, the problem here is that, that it, it's very hard for us to realize that as a medical profession, the amount of credibility that we have lost in this pandemic, and we have lost it not because of the discourse, the discourse would have been good, we lost it not because we said, hey, look, we were wrong in March, but we were right in May, or we were right in May, wrong in May, in hindsight, no one really said that, everyone stuck to their own thing. Um, I mean, uh, We've lost it because we appeared politicized. Uh, Richard Horton got hammered. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. So he went on question time um, at the end of March. And on question time, the British um, uh, round table, he essentially said that the, um, the British government had been complicit in the deaths because of their delay. I, I can't, I, I'm paraphrasing you. I don't know what he said exactly. And he said that there was general scientific consensus from February onwards that this is going to be bad. So one of the people in um, <laughs> Boris Johnson's government, and there's no love lost between between uh, Horton and Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know he does not like the conservatives, uh, and I don't blame him entirely. And um, so one of the people went back and looked at one of his tweets when when you had that first publication in Lancet. So Lancet got there before NGM, for the record. They were the first to publish the SARS-CoV-2, and um, and. In that particular publication, if you recall, I think it was Jan 17, uh, it was like a pretty shocking case fatality. You, of course, didn't know the infection fatality at the time. And Horton tweeted that, uh, let's calm down the media panic. And this is something that has a low pathogenicity and moderate transmissibility. But that's your first reaction. And then you say that there's consensus. And then you say that... So. When he said that, there was a huge backlash on Twitter and lots of very, very prominent people, public intellectuals or just people who have the public stage said, hey, listen, what about your tweet? You're being politicized or you're a Corbynite. Um, and what, what happens then? People retreat to their echo chambers. So, you know, I might retreat to Penn and somebody might retreat to the Harvard little echo chamber and just say, oh, look at these masses, unwashed masses, how, how idiotic are they? But, 
what's going to happen is the next time you come out, you know, it's going to be the next pandemic, obviously. It has to be. And it's statistically Hopefully certain. Hopefully not, not in my lifetime, please. <laughs> I know, there, there will eventually be, yeah. No, I think your yeah. point is well taken. I mean, yeah, very well taken. I mean, <clears throat> if one, yeah. While you were saying that, I thought of something slightly unrelated, but I want to I want to toss it out there, um, you know, because I think it is sort of where we are as a society, and that's the New England Journal of Medicine's um, "Dying in a Leadership Vacuum" editorial. Um, all this pandemic going on for months, you know, total just total fiasco in this country. I mean, management is quite poor. I mean, there's no plan. There's no centralization. There's no testing. There's no, you know, there's not even science. I mean, I don't even know what it is. It's just crazy. Um, And then, you know, when the polls were at their peak, that it looked like Trump will be defeated, the NEJM runs their little editorial, dying in a leadership vacuum, all about how the current administration is crappy. Um, and, um, they actually never said Trump. They don't use the word Trump. Um, they're, even then they're scared to say it. Um, and, and it just got the predictable Twitter response, which is, yeah, we, you know, look at the New England Journal standing up for what's right. And then I came on this podcast and I said that it was, you know, just sort of totally empty because they don't have the guts to say his name. And they're just clearly just virtue signaling that they, you know, don't like him. I mean, and, and they've never done it. I mean, they're not like Richard Horton, the Lancet, who's, you know, he's commenting on every political issue. They're not like that. Um, this is, um, this is a, this is a, this is a journal that has historically remained apolitical. And by, by doing that, I think they're just going to lose a few people who might be sympathetic to Trump. I don't think they're going to change a single, I don't think they change a single vote in the election. I, I mean, it was just an empty gesture. Um, what are your thoughts on this editorial? Yeah, well, there are two elements of this. First is, um, do you change minds? And the second is, do you make a, do you make a strong statement? Are the two actually linked? I think it might have been better in the long run for everybody for a medical journal to be apolitical despite the circumstances. Because their being political has less significance than their had they remained apolitical. Right, that's right. Time. Yes, right. Because they're being political at the time when Lancet came out and said the same thing. I think DMJ just said the same thing. Maybe right, and Science, yeah. Scientific America. I mean, every yeah. journal had their... It was a week of every journal saying that we don't like Trump. It, 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 the, it might have been... It might have been more... Uh, discretion might have been the best part of Valor in this particular instance. And they might have gotten more long-run... That, that look, this is an apolitical journal that despite... Um, the circumstances they remain physical. I don't think that this really uh, achieves anything, and I think that the the major issue for not just physicians, physicians, but the community is that they have so nakedly allowed uh, criticised the whole thing, and they can say, "Well, it's because of Trump." Had it been anybody else, it wouldn't have been this polarized. But I. I seem to recall that Ebola was also getting to be pretty polarized. Yeah, I remember. We're calling uh, the travel restrictions in the Yes, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's just that just just muddy. It just sullies everything. It just you know, uh, it becomes very difficult to recover from those kind of accusations in the sense that it becomes very difficult. 
you, you, you're no longer in the scientific province. You're now in the cultural province. You're now in the um, John Stewart. So who's that British comedian? That's very funny. John Oliver. Yeah, you guys think he's very funny, don't you? You guys don't know what British comedy is. Funny <laughs> 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 American. <laughs> yeah, else we don't like the dry satire. Um, yes, well, but, well put, yeah. That, that, that's for those people. For, for people that are in the scientific realm, you have to make arguments that are scientific, political even, but only in the sense that they have um, pragmatism in it. Um, not political arguments. And I think that's where I think that's where we, as many of us, have um, sort of relinquished that and gone on to talk shows to um, appeal to a crowd that is of a particular political disposition. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I agree with the diagnosis. Um, I, uh, I, I, I worry we are, we are in a not terrific place now as you, as you, I think you aptly note. I mean, I think, I think of, of all the things you said in this conversation, and I know our time is drawing to a close of all the things you said, the thing that I think is most apt, I think they're all apt, but I think the, 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 the single takeaway point is that medicine needs to be a profession for everybody. It just has to be, to some degree, a profession for everybody. And and it's based on, I think, scientific principles, which are principles for everybody, because it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think. Um, you know, we all agree to a certain set of ground rules. We all agree to that. Um, and, 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 and people have allowed Trump to, to change this rule, to make an exception to the rule. Um, because he's the quote-unquote worst thing out there. But I don't think he is the worst thing out there. I think what is coming is the worst thing out there. That um, in retrospect, we may look back with the same way we look back with George W. Bush. Um, you know, <laughs> that with, with, with a little bit of I miss that guy, even though he did a lot of things that I vehemently and still disagree with and I think have scarred, um, you know, the world for 100, 100 plus years. Um, uh, but but I think we do miss a lot of things about him, his... Um, um, and, and I think we may, can you imagine what Trump is to Bush, um, what the next person is to Trump? Um, and then where will medicine be? Um, I think that's the question people should ask themselves. Yeah, no, we, we're not, we're not in the golden era of discourse. I'm not sure put it that way. Um, I think there was never a golden era, but there was a better era. There's a better era. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I, I certainly think that. Compared to the Twitter discussions we used to have in 2017 about orbiter trial, <laughs> <laughs> seems like a thing was you know did they randomize correctly and did they follow up correctly and was there selection bias? Um, compared to what we have right now, you know I think there's, there's definitely a categorical shift. There's only one. There's only one consistency in my life. Back when Orbita came out, you know, I've I've had views on Orbita for a long time because we made a prediction that that it would turn out the way it did in our book, Ending Medical Reversal. Um, and uh, of course, everyone was was on my case. You know, who's this guy? Even though he's an Indian man, he's not a technically a cardiologist. He's not a cardiologist, and so I heard that you know a million times. This year, I heard a lot of new ones. First, I heard he's not a public health expert, and then I I dusted off my degree from Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health, and I showed everyone that degree. 
degree. And I was like, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. I got my degree. Uh, and then, then they said, well, he's not an infectious disease doctor. And so the one consistent theme in my life is that I'm, I'm not what, what I don't have all the appropriate check boxes uh, before you can actually in, 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 engage with what I'm saying. Um, so that's been the, that's the consistency, but the diff, the disconsistency is we used to agree to some rules and now it's all out the window. Yeah, no, that's not coming. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think what, what you're going to have on Twitter now is just going to be, um, a statement followed by a bunch of RTs and likes, a few objections here and there, a few quotes, but the actual back and forth, uh, I, I can't see somebody like John Mandrola doing back and forth. Yeah. When you're saying that you've hurt my feelings. I mean, that, at that point, what is Man, John Mandrola going to say? Um, I just, I just make little snark remarks here and there, uh, try and say something philosophical about the chest radiograph and then leaving it out to PS60. I think, but I think, you know, I, I, I do think that there is space for, um, discussion of all of these. I just think that it's, has to be done in long form, uh, with, with a bunch of people that are interested in Syria. Yeah, uh, I think there are. I think there, there's also people interested in reading about this, and there are people who are interested in participating in this sort of discussion. I just don't think that it can, it can be Twitter. Yeah, no, Twitter is no longer the place for for dialogue, for discourse. Uh, on that positive note, Dr. Ja, it's a pleasure to pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Prasad. Yep. And hopefully, uh, when the pandemic is over, we'll have a beer in San Francisco. That'll be wonderful. I look forward to that day. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.